I reckon waiting for the bill in a restaurant at the end of the meal is such a pain. I know, but have you seen Mr Yum Splitting Pay? I used it the other day at a restaurant. I just scanned the bill and straight away was able to easily split it with friends, pay and leave. It was super fast and super easy. Really sounds amazing. That's right. Mr Yum Splitting Pay makes it so simple for diners to pay their bill, to split it between a group and even pay for individual items. Restaurants love it as they get to know their customers better than ever, making it simple to send targeted offers and get their guests coming back again and again. It really is a game changer for venues that love full service but want to streamline payments. Mr. Yum's Split and Pay is the better way to pay, and it's free until July 2023. Visit mryum.com. Welcome to another Principle of Hospitality podcast. I am your host, not Sean DeVries. I am, in fact, Leon Kennedy, about to drop my first ever podcast with Poe. So thanks for tuning in and being a part of it with me. I appreciate you guys. Uh, For those of you that might be tuning in for the first time, Principle of Hospitality tells the stories of professionals within the world of hospitality. It's a straight-talking, ethically-minded and reliable online source of info and inspo for people that are in hospo. Now, today, I am super, 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 super pumped to be having a conversation with our amazing guest. Over the years, I've been able to call this person a peer, a co-worker, and most importantly, I've been able to call him a friend. This dude is an icon within our industry, the co-founder and driving force behind Uncle, the owner of the recently launched Pollen in Kyneton. We are, of course, sitting here with the one and only Rennie Spence. Rennie Dog, how are you, bro? Hey, good, man. That's uh, a lovely intro. Thank you for the uh, kind words, sir. I think I would, though, throw in, like, you are to me, but all of those things and a bit of a mentor, actually. So, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, so thanks, man. Yeah. Oh, man, no, it's, it's actually quite funny because I thought it's been so long since we've caught up. So what a great way to do it I in know, a podcast with a few people listening in. I was thinking that it's so 2022 <laughs> where friends have to d- diarise what they're going to do and what you do is you catch up over a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> New right. trend. New trend. It used to be a beer, but yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, hey, honestly, man, it's it's amazing to have you here. Like, I'm super passionate about being able to do this podcast in the first place. Like, it's important for me, you know, to be able to contribute to this industry and to be able to help people learn and, and to help people enjoy their lives more. And I think one of the best ways for people to do that is to hear from other people that have succeeded, you know. And as you know, for anyone who's succeeded, they've also probably failed and along the way picked up some great lessons and I think the people listening to this will be able to gain some really cool insight just by hearing your story. Yeah. So why don't we why don't we just start there? Like I thought maybe it would be a great place to kick off is just why don't you tell us a bit about that? Like how, how did you get into hospitality? How did you, how'd you find yourself in this wacky industry? So it's – when did I start? Probably 1995 or thereabouts. My dad had been um, – one of the directors of Whitbread, the the brewery in the United Kingdom. So he was the director up in Scotland, and he had always uh, flown over to America uh, and pretty much like just stole all of the ideas <laughs> in America and various places and brought them over and opened up really awesome places in Glasgow. So he opened up Glasgow's first uh, Mexican joint um, called Chimichangas, and that was in the eighties. No uh, he opened up a place called John Street Jam, which is an old in an old bank. Uh, Wait, a couple are we of talking, like, legit Mexican, or are we talking, like, nah. Tex- 
Tex-Mex? No, nah, like men. I think there was like maybe a corn wrap. Cool. I think, okay. and there was definitely sombreros. So, so Scottish, Scottish, Mexican. Oh, for sure, Lot, right? Lots of, lots of tequila. Man, er, exactly, bad tequila. <laughs> I mean, er, early days, right? But yeah. he was really kind of groundbreaking. Uh, he was in with a whole crew of people that were uh, that were kind of p- part of the nightlife and the fabric of, of Glasgow. And, mm-hmm. I, and I didn't really get the benefit of, of that. My dad had transitioned out of that and into a public relations and, and marketing career. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my sisters got all the, like, you know, direct VIP access to all of the clubs and the free <laughs> drinks and the kind of rock star entrance, right? And uh, yeah, by the time I was 16 and started going out and uh, with my fake student ID, <laughs> it'd be a bit harder to do these days. Um, yeah, it, uh, my, my dad had already kind of moved on. So I was like, you're whose son? Like, whatever. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so I had, I guess, probably been uh, destined towards d- g- going into this industry. And gotcha. I started off uh, banqueting waiting at the Hilton Hotel in Glasgow, I think in 1995, I think was a maybe. And um, so in there, I started off and you, you would go in and you would set up for uh, up to a thousand people banquets. And oh, uh, yeah. and you so you just learn to carry things, you know? Yeah. And then you would- I would read a polish. Yeah, right, the, totally, <laughs> man. Lots of mountains and glasses and everything as well. And uh, so we would go in and we would look after our one table of 10, but we wouldn't even take the orders, I don't think. Oh, wow. I think we just kind of went in. There was a drinks waiter, um, and we went in, and we just, like, queued up to the chef that would shout at us to carry the plates to the table. <laughs> and then you would wait and polish stuff or t- talk shit, and and then you would go in, and you would then clear the thing, and yeah. then you go back in again. So it's just, like, awesome. real basic carry things around, which really is fundamental. Uh, yeah. You know, it's like yeah. there's a whole bunch of other stuff, but... First question for anyone coming on board is like, can you carry three plates, right? Because right, right, yeah, gotcha. you've got to do it and not spill sauce everywhere or flip yep. the top off your... Is, uh, that, is that where you've learnt to carry three plates for the first time or did you already have that skill coming in? No, I was, what, 16 or something like that. And, okay. uh, no, so I, I, I learned there. Oh, and, okay, cool, cool. And then how to set up. I remember being really proud going home and, and setting up the dinner table you know, nice. from my family, and it was like I was really pristine in the way that I would line up the knife and the fork and oh, the, so you know, cool. and the glasses at the right-hand side, you know, yeah, playing the numbers that someone's probably right-handed and yeah. and, and so on and so forth. And, and um, I remember being really proud of that. that. Yeah, the whole family are like, this is this is awesome. So, oh, cool, um, Mum in, in particular, you know, she's putting out our cheesy pasta from the microwave on the table. The table is very well set, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know. <laughs> and um, so I kind of had started there when I was at school and then... Just did a, a, a bunch of uh, jobs when I was, I, I went from there to another place in Glasgow and then I went to uni in Edinburgh and over there was working in restaurants while I was working my way through uni mm-hmm. and um, the kind of one of note was called The Apartment and and that uh, really changed the, the way that that middle ground of dining was done in Edinburgh at that time. It was yeah. quite astonishing. It was like, it was either, and, and even... You know, years later, in hindsight, it wasn't that great because I would go back and visit it after a bit more Melbourne sophistication and, sure. and go, ah, oh, it's not quite as good. But it was either kind of greasy spoon restaurant or or it was really super fine dining, which okay. Edinburgh does really well. Scotland's got, like, some really awesome restaurants. And, um, yeah, but Malcolm Ogilvy Innes, his name is, and he was, like, tw- you know, 25th in line to the throne or something like that. And he was uh, – it's just a really funny dude. He's got a bit of an empire still going. Mm-hmm. Um and he was just making things super casual and super chatty and super right. engaging. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah, and I kind of became part of that process. I got into his restaurant really early on and became a uh, and became supervisor and then assistant manager, you know, while yeah. I was going through uni. So um, yeah, and I think that 
probably um, what really hooked me into to the restaurant was was the pure hedonism of, of the thing as well because mm. it's and the camaraderie and I think that when you then go out for drinks after work and we used to go down to a place uh, we'd have a knockoff at work and then we'd head down and we'd have a few more drinks and we'd have shots of Sambuca back in the day which I can't touch now <laughs> and um, and various other bits and it really hooked me in just to that sheer pleasure of doing the thing yeah. and um, I think as well like I was a super shy kid I'm the youngest of, of three Right. And my sisters are really gregarious. My dad is like super life and soul of the party. Wow. And um, and I was like real quiet. And I think a lot about this now, how the industry has helped shape me as a human, mm. where now I'm actually really comfortable with, with people and I really thrive yeah. with, with people. I was going to say, because I would never have known that about you, man. Yeah, I'm like a hu- if I, I was a bit of a, an, an introvert and then I was probably quietly confident. Mm. And then... and. Yeah, and and then now I'm probably slightly more overtly confident, but hopefully not a wanker, right? <laughs> like well, not. It's funnily enough, I mean, talk about the apple doesn't fall far. Like the way that you just described your dad just a few sentences ago. Yeah. I think if anyone's, you know, been lucky enough to to dine in your section and see yep. you waiting and running a section, that's a great description of how you run the section. Yeah. Thanks. And it's about you and your service and your charisma, and that's what makes it so amazing, you know. Yeah, but still probably tailoring that to the individual that yeah, you're that, that you're seeing. So totally. it's like really striking that fine balance between being your being yourself and then being who they need you to be. Because mm. if it's somebody that's just in and out in a quick lunch meeting and so on, and mm. and I used to be a bit offended that they would be very <laughs> offhand with me, and then now it's like, no, 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 they're just in for the meeting, man. Yeah, they don't yeah, want to yeah. chat to you, you know? <laughs> as interesting as you think you are, it's like, you don't want to hear about it. So, And that, that style of service, and, and not to take us on a tangent, but yeah. um, and, but I probably will. I was going to say, <laughs> how many of them are we going on? Yeah, I'll make this sort of quick one. I'm just curious, though, yeah. like, that that approach to service, yeah, um, is it draining? Do you find that like you get to the end of service and you're just like more tired than say the other waiter that that wasn't trying to be so tailored and taking into account so empathetic, let's say, and take into account each diner's kind of situation? Yeah, I think that I am a bit of an empath where I kind of actually it's actually to my detriment uh, mm. as as well as beneficial. But actually, I take on other people's energy anyway mm. and can kind of reflect that back to them. And that can burden me sometimes, but also then means that, that, that I mean, whether it was through uh, a, a process of time mm. or whether it was natural or maybe a combination of both of those things, mm. then it, it's not draining. It's just kind of normal, you know? And right. I just know now that I, I don't kind of labor the point to try and get more than they want to get out of me unless I'm okay. just cracking a quick joke, yeah. <laughs> bad gag, yeah. and then uh, and then turn them around, then they engage, you know, whatever. But it's... Uh, I'm not drained by that at all. Like, I actually am energized by it. Wow. And, and Ruth, um, my wife that you know, mm. is is a bit more introverted. And I, and I get energy in people's company. Yeah. And Ruth has, gets energy from, from, from removing herself from that. Yeah, she wow. loves that as well. And mm. everybody that knows her would say she's an extrovert, actually, mm. I would think. Mm. But she's not really. But I, but I think I think I am. So I gain energy from amazing spending time with people. You know, pretty yeah. pretty handy then that you found such an amazing job to commit to. Yeah, and actually, you, we've probably had this conversation. But I'm also doing a psychology degree to have a second career. So right. like this is, I'm still very much embedded in this industry and love it, and I've chosen to do the business up in Kingston where we live, mm. um, in order that I transition to something else. But it will mm. still be with people, and that's really kind of important to me. You know. Oh man, and the yeah parallels there between psychology and hospitality we're going to have to 
open that can of worms yeah. later, I reckon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. Yeah. All right, so so, so did that, does that bring us to the point of like your experience in Scotland? Was it was from there, was it come to Australia or what, what happened in between? Yeah, so Ruth and I um, met at the, our final year at uni when I started attending to try and get a degree after not really attending for many years. I was enrolled in University <laughs> in Edinburgh for years and only really attended a bit of the final year to get the bit of paper. Mm-hmm. And I met Ruth at that point and we decided that we'd go traveling together. We both had aspirations to go to India mm-hmm. and, um, and Nepal. And we got a, our, our sisters had both or all three sisters, one of hers and two of mine had all gone to Australia to do a gap year mm-hmm. and we didn't want to do what they did. So we went to New Zealand. So we kind of did the India trip and then went to New Zealand. So we work in hospital. Like hospital is just the perfect job to go oh, traveling with yeah. because you can just pick up work anywhere. Yeah. And if you speak the language or not, yeah. you can carry things and smile, right? Yeah, like it's just, good. yeah. And there's just real great kind of key lessons that you can mm. uh, take on in life and kind of uh, uh, put out there to the world, you know? Mm. And um, so, yeah, so we did that in New Zealand for a while and I was working, uh, we, we ran a little uh, place in Fox Glacier for a few months. We uh, had a little house there. And we looked after the the cafe overlooking the, the Mount Cook. It was like pre- it was pretty amazing. Yeah. And um, we were in Wellington for seven months, so that was in two thousand and three. Mm. Um, and lived there, and I worked in a in, in a cafe restaurant there. And, and Ruth worked in a little a little place in Arrow Street uh, called Delhi Arrow, which was really amazing. She was making focaccia and 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 lots of dips, and so it was like really amazing. And awesome. so then we came to then we did a bit more traveling. Came to Melbourne. And I got a job at Pelican oh, yeah, okay. in, in St. Kilda. So that's probably, the, you know my resume from then on, more or less, I probably, would think. And, yeah. But yeah, Pelican, um, if people don't know it, was a business uh, really of the noughties. So we, I got there in mm. 2004. I think it was two years old. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it was never a business that that was, uh, you know, the award-winning this or at the top, the tip of the tongue of the mm. people writing the, you know, newspapers or the Epicure or whatever at that time. Mm. But John Lethlin was there, you know, every Sunday uh, in his lycra and <laughs> having his coffee and um, w- with his crew. And uh, and it was just a great little local business. Like, yeah. it was it was so amazing. His turnover was off the charts yeah. because he had did a kind of breakfast, lunch, and dinner um, thing. And I think w- it, the important point there was that he didn't, become a breakfast joint and then say, gotcha. hey, now we're doing dinner. It took on the or, all three. Right. It it was, and that's hard, man. Oh, Seven man. days a week. Well, that's that, in a way, that, that breaks the mold, right? Like, totally. Who had done that prior um, to that? I don't know where the Maybe City Orange? Wine Shop City Wine Shop, yeah. Uh, comes in in that timeline, but certainly it would be a runabout there. Yeah. Uh, Orange uh, was open at a similar time, yeah. I think. There was yeah. a similar vibe going on. People that came to Orange went to Pelican. Mm-hmm. Um and vice versa, and um, and people that worked to each had had come across as well, ah, gotcha. and um, but yeah, he really d- did some pretty amazing things with that business, and I and I started off, um, answering a job for a supervisor in the newspaper, wow. and went over there, and they were like, "No nah, man, you're a backpacker. <laughs> I can't understand what you're saying, and uh, and you have no relationships with anyone in this town, yeah, and um, awesome. but you can start." And I had a trial somewhere else, and. They couldn't give me enough shifts. And then Frank at Pelican uh, gave me enough shifts. So I was there. Yeah, and they, yeah. like within a few months, they then offered to sponsor me. And and, and I got sponsorship there, which then Ruth got by de facto. Mm-hmm. So she was free to kind of roam. Mm. And, uh, and and I was uh, locked in at Pelican. So I was there for six and a half years. Dude, what um, a score. Yeah, it's amazing. Like yeah. that business, I mean, I think I gave it as much as it gave me. Yeah. Like I actually feel like I... Um, you know, I was really part of the fabric of, of that business mm. and it was really important to me to have that ownership, you know, vibe. Mm. Like, mm-hmm. not that people 
not that I wanted to make people think that I owned it, right. but I treated it as if I owned it. Yeah, gotcha. And I cared about every single customer gotcha. that came through. So gotcha. I was like from supervisor to, to running the joint under Frank, mm. the general manager who did some shifts on the floor. He was kind of less so towards the end of my time. And then doing the wine list uh, in the latter year, 18 months or something like that. And, mm. and they gave me an education through... Uh, the Australian Similes Association they paid for and oh. Wesset and you know and all this so they were investing in me as well mm. and, and at the same time mm. and so I picked up like masses uh, of stuff from that business but it, it, at the same time I had done my bit mm. and I couldn't learn any more from them you sure. know um, I'm sure I could have I mean I'm sure you can always learn something sure. else but, yeah. but at least I mean you know you, ha- you obviously found like the stars aligned pretty heavily you know to be able totally. to find your way in there and then also to work with Frank so closely, like a lot of yeah. people work for these iconic places and you don't tend to have much to do with the founder. Yeah. It sounds like you kind of had a fair bit to do. I mean, it, if I had to put you on the spot and yeah. say, could you rattle off, you know, one or two of the big takeaways that you took from from learning under Frank, could you could you do that? I think Frank, to clarify, he wasn't the founder, he was the general oh, sorry, manager. Sorry, and, yeah. and Paul and Con Christopoulos actually. Oh, of course, yeah, um, gotcha. So Con owned a smaller percentage and Paul Olenek uh, owned the large percentage. Right, so right. he had... Uh, the Royal Saxon after and had the public house, Richmond public house and various other bits. But, um, so, but Frank was my direct report. Gotcha. And, um, and actually Paul Holinick, he was on holiday when I started and he came back and I think the first time I met him, he came in late at night and, uh, and he'd just been to Scotland on a golfing trip. Oh, awesome. And he came back and was like, mate, <laughs> nice to meet you. I've just been to Scotland. The service is fucking terrible. <laughs> what, what are you going to offer me? You know, I'm like, Nice to meet you, mate. But Paul was great to me, and yeah. and Frank was probably my champion to get me sponsored. Okay, but Paul gotcha. kind of w- was on board and was been fantastic with me as well. But mm. takeaways, I think Frank was so 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 focused on on the cost of everything. Oh, um, right. So yeah, pr- prior to that was probably a bit loosey goosey, mm. and um, and Frank was really really having a look at what 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 does that cost and what does oh. that cost in the glass and there's what an amazing there. skill to impart. Though. Yeah. And I felt like I went from, from there, uh, got married, uh, went away on an extravagant honeymoon to South America and came back and, mm. and opened the Smith with Michael Lambie and George Sigiotis and yeah. Scott Borg. And yeah, they, they were um, also very cost dominant, but in, in a more 21st century way, I think, sure. whereas Frank was like bits of paper and okay, the cool. odd spreadsheet and, awesome. and, 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 and so on. And um, yeah, the Smith took that to the kind of next level. But um, yeah, for Frank really cared yeah he, he was just a really caring guy about the about the community and about the the staff as well you know like he really mm. it was it was part of frank's family like he should have owned a piece of that business because mm. what he did for it he was there before me and after me and right. um he's a pretty amazing human you know yeah yeah, yeah. Un- unreal yeah okay and so then it was so it opened up um what did you say? So then you opened up the, the place with Michael Lambie? Yeah, the Smith. The Smith, that's so right. So this is just before I met you. Yeah, um, yeah, not yeah. just before I met you, just post the Smith. But yeah. um, I had gone away on our honeymoon and was uh, starting to be pretty serious about having my own place. And, uh, right. you know, every wanker in hospitality will tell you that they, they're <laughs> going to have their own place, right? Yeah. And and the reality is that most of them won't do it. Yeah, and, totally. And of those that do it, most of them are not prepared for it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so I was pretty dead set on on doing that and had said that from a very early age. When Ruth first met me, I'm like, oh, I'm my own place one day, right? Mm. And, and so the process was I was in honeymoon. I'd left that job. I felt like I'd learned a lot. I'd grown in, in product knowledge and, and, and all of this other mm. stuff and just kind of been part of the fabric of something and building culture and 
and all of these kind of key things. And then I wanted to look for an open. I'd never done an open before. Okay. And so I really uh, actively sought out someone else's opening mm. so that you can go and learn from them and Amazing. take risks uh, on someone else's dollar. You yeah. know, not, not, not that I was <laughs> let free reign at all because it was yeah. a pretty... Not, not in a reckless way, but... Not yeah. at all, no. Nah. Yeah. And... And, and and in a collaborative way as exactly, well, right? Exactly, hundred percent. So with these guys, like I, I got wind that Michael Lambie was opening up a place, and he'd had, uh, he he'd been part of Circa, opened up a Circa, mm. and and uh, was you know executive chef at Taxi, mm. which was you know three hats restaurant of the year, wine list of the you know etc etc etc. And and so when I found out that he was doing that, I actually interviewed f- with Chris Lucas as well for Chin Chin. So okay. that was all happening wow. at the same time, and and got offered both jobs and. <laughs> Um, but took the Smith because of the way that those guys made me feel in that interview. And I, I really, it was really important to me to, I'm very relationship oriented and it was very important to me to work for someone that cared about my wellbeing or yes. my, my place in the structure. Yeah. And, um, and Chris Lucas as well, you know, both of them asked the question, actually standard interview question, who are you going to? Or wh- wh- where are you going to be in three years or whatever, right? right? X amount of years. And I said, I'm opening up my own place. Mm. And Michael and Scott Borg, Michael Lamy and Scott Borg, looked at each other and smiled and went, right, great answer. Because they could see that I was ambitious and I was mm. I was, I was industry into it. I wasn't passing through. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Chris Lucas said, uh, mate, you're not using me as a stepping stone. <laughs> you know, <laughs> something like that, right? He was like, whereas the other guys were, were saw it as a positive. I think Chris, Chris saw it. Maybe as a negative, I'm not sure. That I was going to go in there and, and use all of the knowledge I was going to learn and then take it away or something. <laughs> okay. Whereas those guys were like, great, we've got this dedicated professional that's going to you know do great things while he's with our business. Mm. So, uh, But the Smith was actually like an extraordinary um, business for me to be a part of, particularly because... Um, so George Sikiotis as well, is, is, is he's like really uh, quite an extraordinary operator as well. He was kind of behind the scenes... Um, there and he was connected with made establishment as well obviously that publicized stuff that kind of went on there but beside all of that and Mm. non-politically george Mm. actually was really respectful of me Mm. and he was really open to giving me as much information as possible i loved working for george yeah and uh and and michael and scott as well i was working with day to day george probably more i'd see him every month or so and those guys were so collaborative and Mm. actually even having done the industry for quite a while i've been in it and um and learning from it you're still unsure you're still right. a bit like right you know i'm i'm like uh, i yeah I'm, i just need to be doing something in order to kind of validate myself in mm. order to then say to the world that i can do this thing yeah and but they were looking at me and they're like Renny in this high-end meeting you know like <laughs> and i'm my, my head swimming because we're actually looking at all these costs and spreadsheets and back end and all this yeah. kind of back of house that i hadn't really looked at as closely yeah um, and projections and, and budgets and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm kind of swimming a little bit, but they're looking at me going, Rennie, what do you think? What do you think? Amazing. Yeah. And, and that Legends. was like, so that's both comforting and, and validating. And, mm. But at the same time, it also said to me that, do you know what it is? No one knows what they're doing. <laughs> Everybody, you know, is kind of winging it a bit. Yeah, and, and, um, and so it's really, you know, you, you, but of course you're winging it with no information whatsoever mm-hmm. or you're winging it with like 10, 15 years under your, you know, under right, your belt. Right. It's like, so it's a different thing, but, different, um, different level of winging it. That's right. Yeah. And even those guys were kind of w- w- informed winging it in some mm. ways, but it, yeah. And it was actually great. I mean, and that's just the, that's the hospo business model though. Hey, I mean, like there's no other industry like hospitality in like, even if you just look at the 
mechanics of the business, right? Like it's low margin, therefore it has to be high volume, which is already yep. the wrong equation that totally. you want in business. Yep. But then on top of that, all your stock is perishable. Yeah. Right. The market's saturated. Yeah. You know, you pretty much need a psychology degree to be a good manager that's to right. manage the that's people. Right. <laughs> I'm going to give myself Work. a bit of paper now, but, yeah. <laughs> but the university see that's not the case. I'm no no prior recognition. No, yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's funny. I mean, it, it, you know, it, you see, you it's such a um, insightful thing you say because you could be doing it for 15 years, but yeah. it's such a unique blueprint for every business because like, of all the moving parts. That's right. It's a different compos- composition on every site. Yeah. You, you, you're kind of starting again to a degree. You can't yeah. just kind of roll out what you did last time. It's, 100%. It's, yeah, it's a bit like parenting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a different podcast, man. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, where are we? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, cool, man. That's awesome. And you, you know, the other thing I, I love about what you talked about um, with Michael and, and George is that, like, whether they did it, you know, with intention or not, I don't know. But, you know, I mean, you look at it now, right? And you look at all the study and all the um, all the literature around culture and everything tells you, right, that it comes down to learning, right? It comes yeah. down to people's development. Yeah. You know, you look at um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, yeah. what's sitting on top of that. It's self-actualization. Yeah. You know, and so to work in places where they're willing to support that, yeah, they're inherently striking the right balance there to empower people and totally. therefore get staff that are willing to put in and, and care. So that's right. Pretty amazing model. It's amazing that you got exposure to that. Yeah. As you were thinking about how do I learn how to start a business too? Did that sure. did that transfer then into your first restaurant? I mean, I th- it, it, it had to have right. Mm. Like I think that. Um, did some media training through them and then also exposed to a bunch of journalists that I'd, I'd met a few before, but not as not as many. I, w- uh, I was then running services in, uh, I mean, the, the business turned over like a lot of money in those first few years. Mm. And it had a, I had a bar and I had a restaurant <laughs> and I had a function space and all of these different things. And I was looking after a body of heaps of staff. So I was... I was the the venue manager um, sitting underneath the directors, like so. I was the kind of next next in line. Right. So to be um, that part in the chain and mm. respected, I was the only real outsider from that hadn't been in their past mm. that sat that high up in the echelon. There was wait staff, every supervisor and above, mm. um, was all somebody that was already internal to their hospitality family. Right. So yeah, I mean, all of the learning, I guess, I must have taken on board just how to. Uh, yeah, be under pressure under a bigger environment. It gave me the confidence to open up a larger venue. Yeah. We were looking just for a small venue, probably mm-hmm. um, m- myself and Di, um, my partner, uncle. And yeah, so it kind of gave me the confidence that we could run a, a, a bigger thing. And mm. wh- wh- why not? Because I had done it, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm. um, yeah, and I think y- you learn lots of what to do's and not to do's, but, mm. but, but I certainly learned a, a bunch of both of those things at, at, yep. at that business, as you do in any business, as anybody would come to uncle and learn what to do and what not to do as well, because mm. my way in there or my manager's way in there by proxy of, of, of our collective mind is, um, yeah, is, is neither right nor wrong. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But it's cool. Cause it's, I mean, in a way it's like you said, it's, you know, every business you open, you're still sort of winging it. And when you opened uncle, you're still kind of winging it, but at yep. least the experience you had at the Smith gave you a bit more comfort for, with for that uncertainty. Sure. Yeah. I actually felt like locked and loaded and ready to go mm. for uncle. It was actually kind of, it was, r- it was such a great priming exercise doing yeah. that. And actually like entered you into this picture. I kind of quit the Smith mm. and, uh, and had a bunch of months left over to do her own thing. Mm. Um, the wheels were in motion. And then Jason Jones, <laughs> our mutual friend, uh, had said, Hey man, we're opening up Bastia. Come on board 
uh, so you can do an open with us, mm. and then you can leave because you're doing your own thing. Right. And um, yeah, and and then actually meeting you in particular as well, and Jonesy as well. Like mm. I didn't know him that well. He's my wife's best friend's now husband. Yeah. So Ru- Ru- Ruth and Amy are are, gotcha. are super close, and um, so. Yeah, Jonesy is, is is a great operator. But mm. meeting you actually as well at this point in the picture, you actually, there's only a few people that have shifted the way that I think about hospitality, oh, well. like specifically, and yeah. you're one of these people actually. Like the, Wait, the in, a good, in a good way? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in a good way about hospitality, maybe in a bad way about life. I don't know. There's, 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 uh, not sure. But um, uh, yeah, like the, the time that we spent in particular at the onset of that business as well mm. and really drilling down, I mean, what you were doing, I would have said prior to that, is quite corporate and ill-fitting, right. but actually is is very smart, and and you can you can do all of these things at this level of detail mm. with this level of structure. You're throwing right. mission statements and vision statements. <laughs> I'm like, you, who, the, who, who do you think you're? Were you Nike? You know? But uh, actually, you know, now Pollen has got like a, a vision statement and a mission statement, Love right? It. And it's actually really important that everything that we do at that business and the staff that we're going to be getting on board embody that and mm. understand that that's the core of the business right so there's a lot Amazing. of stuff and just obviously just come from prouds the roastery just mm. just now prior to this conversation and seeing your your board up there the quarterly yeah. board with the targets and all that yeah. like ruth, ruth and i are going to be meeting quarterly cool. and having having a, a, a night where we're discussing you know what our projections are and how we're going and financially we need to look at all that stuff as Amazing. well as what you know the the mission for that quarter and mm. um, whether it's going staff or whatever right and that's a tiny business and pollen currently is ruth and i yes and that's it although yeah. we've got another employee just starting so we can open saturdays in two weeks yeah but yeah man what a what an epic um what an epic journey and uh, i mean hearing all of that kind of makes a lot more sense now it's like w- when you opened uncle yeah it just was it opened to a bang I mean, that was insane. Yeah. I remember coming to the um, opening thing that you had during the day there and just going, yeah. I mean, I, I'd literally spent almost every day with you in the lead up to it, yeah. hearing everything that you were talking about. Yeah. And then I just went in there and went, what the fuck? Oh yeah. my God, yeah. what has he built? This is insane. And yeah. I want to get into that. But before we do, um, I had a, another question I'm keen to ask you because yeah. I love how as you told us your story and yeah. you, you kind of gave us those milestones and you gave us those little snippets, you know, it's almost like if we stop the podcast right now, you could almost zoom out a bit and start to get a few connection points in there and yeah. sort of start to see a little bit of a pattern emerging. And anyone who's working in marketing or branding, listening to this podcast right now, maybe pause it and see how you go. But I think what yeah. would be cool to hear is like, how what is your ethos to service and hospitality? I mean, c- could you... Could you describe it, and and if so, like what what are some of the defining moments that you described along the way that have sort of defined that ethos? I think that my ethos, um, if I were to put words to it, probably is people centered, maybe, or maybe kind of an extrapolation of that is experience centered, yes. maybe. So I think, or actually, maybe both of those things, mm. because f- for me, w- when we were doing Uncle prior to opening, prior to being called uncle, prior to being modern Vietnamese, right. prior to having an, an architect on board or or, or investors, mm. the way that we kind of spoke about this very naturally was about the way that the business felt, mm. way over and above how the business tasted, what it looked like, you know, what it sounded like, um, and, and, and so on. So actually it's about the feeling of that experience, mm. and and that um, is my end, you mm. know? And, and I think... 
that when I when I meet people and they're like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I got a restaurant in Melbourne," and and um, they say, "Oh, cool, you the chef," you know, <laughs> and I'm like, uh, "No, no, I'm there." And they're like, "Ah, oh, what, what do you do?" And it's like, "Yeah, I car- carry plates without spilling sauce." <laughs> Three of them, exactly. <laughs> carry four, buddy. <laughs> Five. Um, but it's it's the experience that is key for me, and it's yeah. the way that people feel when they come in and they're held by our venue, mm. and so I think. And when I, when I say people-centered as well, then what I mean by that is both the people that you're encountering as they come up the stairs or in, in, into the venue and th- that you're looking after them, but also the staff. Like, they say that your staff are customer number one, right? And, yeah, and actually, yeah. for me, the culture that you build with your staff members mm. is just so key. It's yes. just like, and it can be overlooked because people are so driven by profit or by perfection. Like, the, there is, like, the... Staff culture sometimes is like the enemy of perfection mm. because if you handle it the wrong way, because actually if you are just so driven by this thing and making sure that everything is tilted at exactly the perfect angle right. so that it is seen upon the glinting sun at the time of day, <laughs> you know, so you can see the brand and the glass or whatever. Yeah. It's like that is kind of awesome and kind of ludicrous, yes. right? And it's uh, and and so I think you need to kind of teach people that, but if they don't do that the first time or the second time or mm. the third time, mm. then you got to kind of cut them a bit of slack yeah, because actually the most important thing for me is that the customer will have a much better experience yep. if the staff is having a better oh, experience. So and you can well feel said. that energy and electricity in a room. If yeah. you go in there and the staff are having a good time, mm. I want to be in that venue. Yes. I'm spending my dollar and I'm staying longer and I'm coming back and so I'm telling true. my friends. Yep. And, if, and if things were a bit overcooked, or mm. the cocktail took a little while, mm. or whatever. It's Looks like that is secondary to the experience that, that I had. And that experience, though, was layered, you know, um, in, in so many different ways. You know, like I'm obsessed with the lighting in a, in, mm. in, in a venue or the, the, the volume of music or the type of... I mean, this is all normal stuff that we, we should all be looking at. Sure. But I'm kind of obsessed with that. And actually, <laughs> I've just got... When we opened up Pollen, mm. on a slight sidetrack, I'm very mm. excited. I was looking... We are running out of money because everything cost more than you think and we wanted i was like can we have dimmer switches and i'm like no nah, it's a day cafe days only it's <laughs> yeah, like doesn't matter and i'm like oh but what happens if the outside and the sun goes down it's like it's a bit it's kindness so it's like cloudy yeah. for six months yeah it's over the, over the divide right and um but then actually what i found and i'm like we can't afford the dimmer and get the guy in and do the thing but we actually got these globes um wicks i think they're called this mm-hmm. is brought to you by wicks i'm just <laughs> and um I've got an app in my phone, and it's like so I can change the the intermit all of the different globes no at way. the same at the same time or individually, and I can also change the temperature of them so oh. warm to cool. It's amazing. Are like you it's and like are you actively busting that out? Yeah, bloody <laughs> right. It's on the iPad. It's on my phone. So love if I'm it. not at the iPad, then it's like a storm comes through. It's like it. you you need to shift that because yeah. actually that changes the mood of the place, right? Mm, for sure. And also for when sure. it's obviously when I come in in the morning, we've got like Max Richter classical you know, modern classical kind of ambient, and it's really beautiful. Mm. And, of course, as soon as you get 10 people in, they need to change it. Right? Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah, for real. But anyway, this is all not groundbreaking. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, lo- I love what you're saying here because, I mean, like you said, even whether people notice the light change or not, just the fact that you're putting that care in. Oh, man, you go into so yeah, many venues. That vibe out. Yeah. yeah, and you go into venues and it's like 7-Eleven, right? It's yeah, like dude. you're just, oh, my God, and Kiten gets it wrong most places. Okay. And um, especially during the, during the days, I think people set and forget. And... Mm. Um, it's more important at nighttime because there's a very obvious transition sure. of sun going down and, and sure. so on. But you go in and it's too bright. Yep. There's a couple of venues that are different, but m- most are overlooked that point. And, and so um, you know, you know what? I'll, so there's two things in that I'd love to ask you about further because I think it's awesome, right? And 
um, the first thing is when well, you're talking about taking care for your staff, right? Oh, yeah. That's where we were. Yeah. And then yeah. I'm talking about light gloves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is such beside the point. It's just it's a detail. It's a few degrees of separation. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. The, but the thing within that I love, right, and keen to hear your thoughts on is like as, as business owners, right, you know, we get so obsessed with trying to train our staff to understand our vision and understand what we're trying to do. Yeah. And funnily enough, it's, it's really the customers we need to get that. Yeah. And the staff are kind of the, the conduit to that. Yeah. You know, but there's a, there's a saying I heard once, you know, like we, we're constantly trying to get our staff to get it and we train them so that they get it. Yeah. But the funny thing is, is that we really should be trying to treat our customers like staff and our yep. staff like customers. Yeah. You know, and yep. I'm, I'm interested, like, you know, how, how it sounds like you do that kind of maybe somewhat unconsciously or yeah. consciously as well. But ha- how does that sort of statement sit for you? Like, does it resonate? Does it? Yeah, I think it's quite an in- interesting observation, you know. I mean, I, I overtly refer to staff as, as customer number one. But exactly. I've actually not thought about customers as, as staff that are mm. trying to get my culture. I mean, I think... Mm. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think your staff need to somehow embody your culture as much as possible mm-hmm. in order that the staff will get it from not just you because yeah. you're not there all the time. Exactly. And um, the customers get it from, yeah. That, that's right. And yeah. I think that, like, I deliberately wore the apron. I remember when I was at Bastia. Mm. And then, uh, and of course, when I was managing someone else's business and yeah. the Smith before that and Pelican before that, whatever, it's like, I'm really proud not to wear the apron. I'm like, yeah. I don't want to wear the apron because yeah. I'm separate myself yeah. from the other staff yeah, and I look yeah. like the guy in charge. Yeah, but that. at the Smith, I deliberately wore the apron mm. so that I could integrate myself gotcha. into, so that they're not walking in looking for A Rennie or mm. B that Scottish dude at the door yeah, or yeah. You know, whatever. And then, um, so it's actually about making sure that this structure is, it, it can't be completely flat. Mm. It just can't be, it doesn't mm. work, but is somewhat flat. Yep. Because I think that uh, as soon as you have a hierarchy that is too overt and too, and you can see the manager that walks around pointing at things and like, you know mm. what I mean? Who is that guy or girl? Yeah. It's like, who yeah. are you? Yeah. And why are you treating your staff that way? If yeah. that water needs topped up, I'm going to top it up, yeah, right? Because exactly. I've got a second. Exactly. I'm not going to point out to you. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I don't know where I sit with the uh, this, this staff, the customer as staff. Yep. To know. Maybe if I think about it a bit more, it might okay. it, it, it <laughs> might sit, sit sit somewhat more. Well, the the, the other thing I wanted to pull out of that because because this whole conversation was coming back to ethos, right? Mm. And, and your own ethos. And there was, was something that I thought about, um, which kind of occurred to me, right? So, uh, and and this is just my own stupid opinion, right? Like, there's uh, maybe no one else in Melbourne thinks this way, but <laughs> when I think back to like you think about the good food guide, right? Yeah, and it's like you know. The, the fine dining restaurants are all going for hats, right? Yeah. And to get a hat, you have to get a certain score. Yeah. So I think it's, is it 15, over 15? 15, 14.5, 15. I think they changed that a while ago well, and then I lost I, interest. I, I, so I've got I no idea. Though, is that like it's suddenly these categories started to split up, right? Because yeah. suddenly you could be a restaurant like what you guys were doing. Yeah. Uh, where it's just really casual. Yeah. You know, and maybe there's going to be some hip hop playing and there's going to be some Melbourne bit of long necks on the wine list and stuff. Yeah. But everything is elevated. Yeah. The experience is elevated. But because you're not doing tablecloths and wine cellars and shit like that, you can't get a 15. So yeah. 14.5 becomes the highest score you can get in that echelon. Yeah. And the, and so places like Mamacita, and, yep. and we did it at Bastia, and, yep. and Uncle, like, there was almost like a little movement there that, that sort of came out where it was like kind of not, not, it sounds a bit sort of lame to be like proudly not having a hat. 
Yes. But it was it wasn't it wasn't even about that. No. It was just it about was very definitely not about that. Exactly. Actually. Yeah. yeah. It was just about like uh, for me, what you talk about with your ethos kind of mm-hmm. encapsulates that movement really well. It's experience driven. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, mean, I think that yeah, others had already broken the ground before. We're not, you know, we're not the first modern casual sure, eatery sure, sure. that's kind of, sure. you know. But but I, th- I think certainly when Uncle came along uh, in 2013, I think that we certainly did. We were the first people down in St Kilda way to do that. Mm. In Balaclap, we were kind of technically Balaclap, or technically St Kilda because we were before Chapel Street, but right. probably more spiritually Balaclap. But anyway, so sure. we were, no one else is doing anything like that anywhere down there. But mm. m- I mean, Mavida had not had tablecloths. Right. And had got hats sure, and they were doing like when I'm saying about a few people and instances that changed my mind about hospitality, Mm. you were definitely one of them. And Dante Ruini, who is, um, so he was at Mavida when I first went there and he is, uh, had Huxtable and then Huxtaburger. So he's the, he's one of the Huxtaburger guys. Mm -hmm. And Dante actually is, is really amazing as well. And I remember being served by him. This is a tangent obviously, but I remember being served by him and going in and, just the way that he did it was so effortlessly awesome mm. and so so sophisticated, but so it was it was really uh, low key. It was really mm. downplayed. He just right. did everything with with you know without an overt extravagance of saying, "Hey, look how great this is." Yeah, it just wow. was great, yeah. and the food is delicious, and the music was great, mm. and I was sitting high up on a stool, yeah. and 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 yeah, I remember just like this guy is awesome, mm. and I knew that he was in the wine world, and so I kind of yeah, I knew his you know who, who he was, and then. He ended up coming to work at Pelican, oh, wow. and he then worked under me um, before he did Huxtable. Oh, but he right. he could have run any joint in Melbourne, and he chose to do that because it was days. He was work- running the days, mm-hmm. and um, so it could fit in with his life with his uh, girlfriend, now wife. Mm-hmm. And um, then they had a kid in there somewhere, I think, and so on. So that was a choice for him. But actually, we became great friends and mm. still are, and I learned a lot. Of, he, he was a really key player in changing the, the way that I, th- that I thought about it. It was yeah. great to be picking his brains afterwards. But I remember that specific experience, yeah, yeah. you know, sitting down at that moment, being served by that guy in that venue. And I think Mavida, because it is it is a hatted venue, mm. but it certainly has no tablecloths and it's very right. casual and, and so on. Mm. But um, yeah, there's a there was a bunch of people doing it, but I think that we really embodied that moment. And yes. we, I think it was of our time. And I think that I had, like, that was everything I'd been doing at Pelican anyway. Mm. And it then was catching the wave not because I was doing it, but I was just part of that time. Yeah, gotcha. And that's what I enjoyed doing, and that's where I enjoyed spending my money. And, mm. and, and so, therefore, we made a restaurant that was like that. Yep. And it wasn't, you know, um, super – it wasn't like you take it – you come in your order and you take it away, or there's a buzzy thing, or there's right. a number, or whatever. So, it was very table service and so on, but it was super casual. Yeah. And um, – yeah, but every like every detail taken care of. My mate made the handmade aprons, and he makes our aprons up at uh, Pollen as well. And and my wife made all the crockery, so yeah. she's fork ceramic, she's called, and she made um, all of the crockery, which is all at Pollen as well. It's, it's like just all of these details. Yeah, all these touches. There's really... Just a little bit of a break in the middle of this podcast, just to remind you about Sasha's business, Principal Design... It's one of the best designs agencies in Australia. So if you're looking for anything around strategy, branding, digital design, wayfinding, graphic design, you can find them at principledesign.com.au. They're doing amazing work for people in the hospitality industry or anything around branding. Like they are absolutely exceptional. Everything that's produced for Poe is done by Principal Design. So well done, team. 
And myself, I've got a business called Open Pantry Consulting. So we do anything regarding to with tech stacks or systems and processes, even into recruitment as well to make your business run even more smoothly in these hospitality ventures. You can find me at openpantryconsulting.com. Now let's go back into the show. Really beautiful and just kind of integrated into this whole experience, you know? Yeah. And I love it. So let's talk about the restaurant for a sec. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I don't I don't want to be like, you know, some kind of lame, like tell us the Hollywood version kind of thing. Like, yeah. Yeah. like I said, like, I mean, I want people to take something from this podcast, right? Yeah. So let's kind of frame it a little bit. Yep. So um, let's put it this way, okay? You, you've you've built from scratch, okay? You, you guys, right? Yep. Built from scratch, an iconic hospitality business. Right. All right. Now yes. we're talking a brand that's in the top two percent, right? I mean, I don't fact check me on that, but let's just call yeah. it yeah. <laughs> All right, top two percent of competition, right? Um, so in a market where so many others have failed, what contributed to your success? I mean, I think a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about anyway, like you gave me Stephen Covey's Seven <laughs> Habits of Highly Effective People, right? Yes. When I left the theater, yeah. I remember that. And so funny. he talks about kind of private victory mm. and then public victory. Mm-hmm. And mm. I think that's like really important because I think in the days of Instagram and instant success, mm. it's like everybody just wants the thing now and yeah. they want to be that person that looks like they're doing <laughs> awesome things yeah. overnight. Yeah. And it just kills me, right? Mm. Like actually I'm anti-Instagram and I have you, know, you have to do it. Uncle does it very badly because we just... <laughs> Yeah, anyway, and Colin, <laughs> we, I do it, okay. and, and it's like I've just, I, I don't I have this hate-hate relationship with it, but it is necessary, and sure. especially in building culture in the small town that I have, sure. and um, that I'm in, and, but I think that people would say, you know, overnight success, or, what you know, mm. but like, Di and I came from nowhere, mm. like, we were not known people, mm. we were not, you know, on the lips of everybody is the next big thing, or whatever, right, mm. we mm. were just these guys, mm that had worked together at, at, at Pelican. So we, we met there. He was right. head chef and that was restaurant manager. We worked together for four years, I think. And, um, but we did all of our hard graft there and all of our learning. Mm. And I think like, I think seeking mentors as well is really important. I sure. think not thinking that you're the hot shit and you know everything. And I think being, having the humility to get out there gotcha. and ask people. And I think that, um, and that's in lots of different facets as well. So mm. who came on board, Uncle? And that was a real key, actually, because we were looking for this small venue. Right. And I was in Balaclava, where I lived, and I looked across the road, and I saw <laughs> a sign on, a, on the board on the side of the building, and it said, uh, restaurant space for, for lease, rooftop um, you know, included or something like that. And yeah. it was a building site. Yeah. And um, so, and it was like, shit, that's like a 150-person venue. It's 304 <laughs> square meters. Like, we totally can't afford it. And it's like, ah, so what we're going to do is we're going to seek investors. And there's people that have said they'll invest uh, in me in the past. Mm. And so, therefore, we kind of built this presentation to speak to them. And I got my friend Luke on board to do P&Ls uh, and, and, and balance sheets and stuff just kind of projected so that we could put it to these investors. Mm-hmm. And But Luke is, is, uh, is an accountant and a really close friend of mine. And I'd see as another mentor financially and business wise, mm-hmm. but also he came on board as an, as, as an investor. Right. So I think that doing the hard yards yeah. and understand, like we, maybe I could have opened somewhere when I was 21 or 22, mm-hmm. but in the later years, I said, I'm going to do it before I'm 35. And I did it um, two months before I turned 35. Right. And um, 
I think all of the hard graft in the background, all of the foundational stuff yeah. is so important Amazing. because I was primed and ready yes. to go yeah. with, you know, I'm not the perfect, I was not and I'm not the perfect operator, but certainly the experience that I'd had of built, uh, had built an understanding within me mm. about how to execute what it is that we wanted to do. Yeah. And um, so I think that foundational stuff and I think seeking mentors probably yep. is another big thing. Like I th- it just people you will often find are actually, and especially people maybe of our generation, I think the people of the generation above can be quite, you know, protective mm. of what they know. And it's like, I've worked for this thing. And I've found that the people more of our age group, I was speaking to uh, Dante and, and and those guys at, at Huxtable um, before, and who else? Steve Sheriff, who had done the Rose in um, in Port Melbourne. Oh, yeah. uh, we had worked together and, and Paul Olenek and... Lambie and Jason Jones as well, who'd done, who'd done, you know, asking all of these people all of these questions yep. and, and, and really kind of sucking up as much of their knowledge as possible. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that you're armed for the perfect business no. because there's a lot of curveballs and there's a lot of things that are, that are um, of this moment yep. that you can't anticipate because yep. they weren't like that three years ago when they opened their venue. Yeah. But certainly to learn a lot of these universal lessons um, is, is, is really important. So I think yeah. that we had not only done our hard yards and walked the road, I think we also sought out people with yep. those inf- with information. And um, and I think the development of brand as well, like Adele Winteridge, who has Fullscap Studio, she is an, is an architect. And she became an architect. I knew from the first time I spoke to her on the phone, she would do when we were speaking to a few sure. people, she was going to be the one. And she managed to kind of extract all of this stuff into what, what it was we were doing as well, mm. because we were doing it quite instinctively and she managed to draw it all out and get a big vision board up there yeah. and we started to talk about all of this different stuff and you know and 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 i think that's really important as well instead of just winging it it's like strip it all apart yeah yeah give it a, give, you know have a look about it t- t- talk to people about it polish it discard some mm. you know and don't be afraid to make mistakes yep. and don't be afraid to change your mistakes love it man i mean that, that last little bit you talked about there like sash will be pretty happy that you mentioned that bit but uh, you, you know what i love about um everything you just described is this idea that, I mean, it's so, there's this perception out there that it is an, ov- everything's an overnight success. You know, yeah, this totally. person was just in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Like you could almost like build a little movie where that day you walk out of your house and then you see the sign and then something happens yeah. and you know, the it's investor the, yeah. bumps into you on the tram, you know, and always push it. Yeah. But the reality is it was grit, you know, totally. and I just, I love that. You know, there's a, I, I feel like before COVID, I would say almost monthly someone in my network would come along and be like, oh, hey, man, I got introduced to my friend. Um, they want to open a cafe. Can you just talk to them? Can you give them some advice? I'll go, yeah, yeah, sure. And so you go have a beer or whatever, and this person will have never worked in hospitality before. Yeah. yeah. And and you know what I do, man? I give them the same advice, right? I say, hey, look, you know what? If you want to do this, the first thing I'll tell you, right, is you got a, you got a Monday to Friday job, right, and you're earning pretty well. You know, just give up your weekends. Right, find a cafe close to your house and just go volunteer your time mm-hmm. and just go work there every weekend for three months to six months, right? And just just do that and then see if you still want to do it. And if you do, man, I got you, right? Let's yeah. we'll sit down, we'll plan some stuff, like no worries. And man, every single one of them either don't do it and then they never open a cafe, or a lot of them sometimes do do it. And then they don't open a cafe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, man, it's, I think hospitality is this peculiar thing that seems really so attractive from the outside <laughs> for all of the wrong reasons. Yes. And it is beautiful. There's, there's actually elements of this industry that are so wonderful and they're mm. so 
uh, foundational to who you can become. And so y- you can learn all of these lessons and, and, and become a better person and, mm. and a better communicator or whatever it is. And um, But I think some people just think it's this rock star thing that you go in and you just kind of like, mm. you know, you just go in and you, d- you do it and it's all fine and everybody comes. And yeah, it's like, yeah. nah, man, you've, you've totally missed the point. Yeah. The amount of people with money that think they can do something without and it's 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 crazy well, th- th- and those, it's those customers aren't saying i mean they pay their bill and leave on a saturday night they're not seeing everyone at 1am taking the bins out and cleaning the right. toilets and yeah <laughs> and all of the meetings that go into it the weekly yeah, meetings and the yeah. monthly meetings and all the different bits and bobs it's just like oh man you just put some good food on the plate <laughs> yeah and then you like invite people and then you'd make tons of money yeah but even those that know what they're doing you know some make tons of money and most don't it's like it's it's yeah if you want to make money then don't do hospitality yeah exactly exactly like yeah yeah uh i mean some people do as well obviously that's that's no but it's overgeneralization it's it's funny though the way that you i mean it's a good segue because you talk about you know the perception that people have of hospitality and i'd say people have a similar perception of success yeah you know they say like oh man this dude's opened this amazing restaurant. Now they're doing this. And if you just look at their Instagram profile, you think, wow, what a successful, happy, well-rounded person. But yeah. let's face it, right? With success comes trade-offs. Yeah. You know? And so I'm, I'm curious, right? Like generally speaking, what are some of the trade-offs that have attached themselves to your success? I mean, I think, so I s- opened Uncle, so therefore it becomes a different thing when you're doing your own business because mm. you don't clock on and clock off. Right, um, you're just on. But I opened Uncle pre-kids, mm-hmm. and uh, so therefore I could just dedicate all of the time mm-hmm. to doing the thing mm-hmm. with an understanding wife uh, that, yeah, that, 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 would, that would do her thing. She was starting off with Fox Ceramics at that point, and, mm-hmm. and then along came our first child, who's now nearly eight. He's just a bit older than Nevi. Yeah, wow. And... Um, and then our second five years later, but it's the the, the trade offs really are that and the, the youngsters don't understand that these days because they just think I'm going to have every second weekend off. Gotcha. Because it's like yeah, cool man. It's like I'll just have that weekend off and that one, and I've got a concert and I've got my friend's <laughs> birthday and I've got a, and it's like that's hold on that's that's really peculiar thinking for me because yeah. you work in an industry yeah. that demands or requires that you are in that space mm. when everyone else is having fun. Yes. Right. Exactly. And I have fun within the industry mm. but if i wanted that saturday night off mm. i bloody get it off because i only want one off a year or two yeah, right yeah. and it's like so i've got no qualms <laughs> saying to frank lamana at mm. pelican I need, I need that one off buddy because mm. it's my friend's birthday and so and it means a lot to me and he's mm. like yeah no dramas and um so whereas the, the people you know these days appear to not understand that yeah. and so i think that to be excellent in this industry you know you are tr- you are trading that off you're mm. trading off what the rest of the world are doing at that point and yep. therefore people like us um, would then have their friendship group within the industry and mm. would then shift to Sunday, Monday or Monday, Tuesday or whatever. Right, right. That's when your weekend is. Yep. Gets a bit harder when you get a bit older. Yeah, totally. With kids. With kids, yeah. And um, so therefore the trade-off when you're older becomes that you're then doing all of those things when, especially when your kids are at school. Yeah. Then if you're working every Saturday double, oh. then you're missing out on you're one missing, of those yeah. Yeah, f- family days or whatever. So well, you, you, can, you can form, in hospitality, you can form a really good life outside that nine to five bubble like you talk about with your mates on Mondays, but man kids need to live in the nine to five bubble and yeah. you need to be there with them you know yeah totally yeah. and and that shifts things i mean i i I've, I've not left uncle but i'm 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 on the floor at the minute about once every six weeks you know i'm okay. just kind of filling in they'll say hey rennie there's two managers off mm-hmm. uh 
so can you come and do it? They, they're not calling me in overnight and saying we're short staff tonight. They just sure. need to deal with that. Sure. But I'll go in. Um, yeah, so but I've had to leave that because of the fact that it the, the, the trade-off is that I'm not spending enough time with my kids. Gotcha. So then let me ask you another question. Mm. Um, so let's just, you know, not to be presumptuous, but let's just say that we were going to categorize everything you just said as work-life balance. Yeah. Okay. Totally. Is it achievable? I think that depends on the business. Everything is so dependent. I think, and it depends on the individual and their expectations. And mm. I think that you can get someone who will then head up some kind of group and they will then be having their meetings Monday to Friday. Mm. Um, but that is a, that's a really big, th that's what probably I aspired to do. Yes. We opened up a second venue in order that we'd have a head chef in each venue, have a manager in each venue, mm. and Di and I would then work over the businesses which just didn't happen. Right. It did right. for a bit. And mm. I went Monday to Friday and I did two doubles and I had the weekends off and so on. But then all of a sudden, you know, then someone's off and I didn't exit from the business enough mm. that it didn't rely on me to do the services. So therefore, yeah. and, and it couldn't afford to do that. You know, I couldn't then, we couldn't then just pay ourselves to, could, yeah. to, to work on the business. Right. We had to work in the business yeah. because it's because the profit margin's not, yeah. not, not, not that high, you know? So, um, so I think it is achievable for some people, but I think that's extraordinary. And I think that that's not common. I mm. think that, um, yeah. So instead then I have actively sought out or created a bit. So unless you're creating your business around those parameters, right. so pollen for me, we actually called it, uh, operation simplify, not <laughs> as a business, but that was sure. the project for us yeah. was to build somewhere that would simplify our lives wow. that would then be close to home mm. that is then days only. Yep. that is not seven days a week mm. because we could spread the rent amongst seven days and the rates and all of these other fixed costs and we can try and do that and we can try and build X, Y, and Z. And mm. But we don't want to do that. We want to do these days, four yep. days only, mm. and it's, it is days only, and therefore I'm building that into my work-life balance. Love and it. the business follows what we want to do. Mm. We're not beholden to anyone. Yep. We you know, we are our own the shareholders in the business and we can make the decisions. And, and if it doesn't work, then... We can work that out, you yeah, know, exactly. but in the business that we are in right now, it's a very different ethos and a very different motivation for doing that business. Yeah. That business is for this stage in our lives to suit our lifestyle and Love to it. build community, you know, mm. and to kind of, we have, have this classic immigrants dilemma where we're both from Scotland and we're like over here and Amy and Jace moved up to Noosa. Yeah, true. And then um, from back from Singapore yeah. and then we're like, Let's move to Queensland. Yeah. You know, it's like, let's go up there. Let's go surfing yeah. every day. This is yeah. the best. And then, then we're like, oh no, hold on. We go down to Port Ferry and we're like, let's move to Port Ferry. That's <laughs> as good as we're going there every day. You're right. And then we're living in Kynes and we're like, oh, let's move to Taradale. It's like two towns over. We can get, you know, five acres for the city, you know, and, so, and we're just classically, because we don't have family here, therefore we're just always looking for what, it, what the other place it might be. And Kynes is actually an extraordinary town. It is so wonderful, full of such great humans that are really passionate about living and about experience and about, you know, the arts and about all that. They're so creative. It's so wonderful. All of the things in our shelves as well are all made by locals. Wow. So we've got things for sale and it's, you know, Ruth's Pots and um, what else? Emily's, uh, Emily Delios's kind of like little wooden uh, chopping boards and vases and just all of this other really awesome stuff. Mate Jess Wooten, we've got some leather bow ties and stuff that he, awesome. like all of it. And it's all super local. But um, why am I saying that? Because that business mm. is fitting into our lifestyle. So I think so that good. as long as you set it up, that that is one of the reasons 
that you're doing it. Mm-hmm. So actually, in, I was saying about this immigrants dilemma, and that business has actually made us drop anchor in that town mm. and also very deliberately trying to be a center of that community. Yeah, wow. And so that because the place that it used to be two years ago used to be the place that we would go all the time and our friends would go and we would all meet there. And, yep. you know, whether you're meeting someone there deliberately or not, you're always going to meet your friends <laughs> yeah, there yeah. And, uh, and make new friends. Yeah. And then she sold it and someone else did something. And then um, and we kind of find like we didn't have our cafe home. And so many people said to us, and we're like, should we do a cafe our cafe home mm. so we've kind of built into the structure of that business us anchoring ourselves in a place because yep. it is extraordinary mm. and i think you'd find it hard to find a better place mm-hmm. and also it serving our needs mm. with with a work-life balance and right. i think so i think that yeah i think i'm a bit older and wiser now in understanding that it has to serve that yeah rather than Doing the thing and hoping that it serves that gotcha. ultimately, you know. Man, it's a yeah. it's a it's a great tactic because yeah. um, you know, I ask you that question and I'm only ever really been familiar with a very different tactic. You know, like what what, what I love about what you're saying is that, you know, you spend so much time in your career building this kind of business or building your life, you know, around this business. Yep. And now it's kind of flipping it around and going, well, let's actually just build this business into our life. Yeah. And it's totally. such a, it's a strong tactic. I mean, for me in the past, I've, I've seen things, I've, I've seen it, it. It's probably one of the most difficult things, I think, that yeah. people struggle with in business or anything that requires this level of dedication. And success yeah. requires dedication. That's right. doesn't matter whether you're playing in the AFL or you're a CEO of a massive company or you own a little cafe down the road. Man, to have success, you need dedication, right? Yeah. And one of the trade-offs to dedication is that balance. And yeah. what I have seen work quite well is when people change the way they define work-life balance. Yeah. And I think we, we spend our whole lives trying to balance our time in quantity. You know, And when you actually start to look at how do I actually – maybe it's not about balancing in quantity because that, that just becomes impossible after a while. You can't sort of go, hey, I've done – I've worked two 80-hour weeks in a row, so you know what, I'm going to take a couple of weeks off next week. Like who, who can do that, right? Yeah, it's impossible. Sure. So if you're trying to manage quantity, yeah, just logistically there's some constraint. But when you actually flip it around and go, well, how about I actually try to balance my time in terms of quality? Yeah. Suddenly it's a whole new landscape. Yeah. You know, and I think, okay, well, hey, I can work a hundred hours a week and study for my MBA and still have time with my kids, you know, because if I'm if the things I'm doing with my kids are meaningful, yeah, then that level of quality outweighs the 80-hour week, right? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, for me personally, I found there's really great ways to do that where, you know, like riding a motorbike for me is very yep. a spiritual thing and yep. getting to do that twice a day on the way to work and on the way back. It and that's commuting. Me. Yeah, exactly, you know? yeah. exactly. <laughs> Who's doing the psychology degrees? <laughs> <laughs> but I, lo- I love that, you know, instead of um, – I remember watching a Chef's Table episode with Sean Brock. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen that one. No. So good. I, what I loved about that was he he sort of talks about his journey and his, his health issues, and it's so intense. I mean, any chef watching that stuff will just relate to it because yeah. all chefs sort of, if they do come out of the kitchen, they come out with some kind of impairment physically. Totally. And for him, it was vision. You know, just oh, wow. suddenly wakes up one day, you can't freaking see yeah. or something like that. And anyway, he, he, he said this really profound thing where he said, you know, now, so he got back on top of things by realizing he can't just work himself to the bone every day. He can't just do every service. He needs to balance. He needs to find that quality of time in yeah. his life. And he said, you know, now what I've realized is, you know, I have to do the self-care stuff and the professional stuff. Yeah. It's not 
an either or thing. You know, I've got to find a way to, to do them both. And there's absolutely no question that that is so important. Like, mm. I think that's a really important distinction yeah. uh, about finding, like, for me, um, like, we, we, we're very busy. I've actually taken a break from study. I'm about to go back again in July. Okay. Um, and I took a break just to open this business because I knew that I couldn't do all of those. Or I could, but I'd kind of implode a little bit. Mm. And to be a, a good dad with without any family around to help us mm. and um, and also to run that business well and to be a part of Uncle and for Ruth and I to have a functioning relationship. Yeah. What I found exactly that I had to do, I actually started karate uh, oh, wow. uh, nearly or probably 18 months ago, a bit more. Mm. And so that one hour per week mm. is is my keystone. That's mm. the, that is the part of my week that really makes the rest of my week function. That also, one hour balances out. Yeah, oh man, and that it, hour yeah. is mine. And it does awesome. not belong to anyone else. And yeah. it is at six o'clock every single Tuesday. Yeah. And it is non-negotiable. And yeah. so, and Amazing. also uh, I run as well. Like mm. I run a bit and that's really important. And I found as well, like I got this Garmin, right? And I'm trying to then do things and I'm trying to like work in cadence and all these other <laughs> kind of technical things to make <laughs> my running better. What a wank. Yeah. <laughs> but what I found was that that was stripping the joy out of it for gotcha. me. So I actually want to do, there's a place called Black Hill, which is like 10 minutes drive from my house. Yeah. And it's this really amazing um, really spiritual place, actually. And you can kind of tra- trail run around there. There's a lot of trails and there's up and over and there's round. And so I do that, you know, at least once a week. Love it. And, and I can sit up on a rock in the northeastern corner as well. That's kind of my rock that I need to scramble around to get to, mm. to sit there and have the view over the, you know, the rolling hills and the and the jumping kangaroos and the mm. bloody olive grove and all of this stuff and these dead trees coming out of these large broken rocks. It's like, it's quite an extraordinary landscape. So yeah. I think that you are both A, playing tricks with yourself by spinning the qu- qu- quantity versus quality yes. metrics. Yeah. <laughs> but I think B, really getting to the heart of something that is actually really important. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to be doing 80 hour weeks on a business because uh, for me that's too much, but I know that you've got the rare genetic condition <laughs> that you only need to sleep two hours a night. <laughs> and uh, four, four. four, excuse <laughs> me. And, uh, and and can still function, <laughs> but I don't. I need eight. Sure, okay. I can do six, and certainly on. Uh, I'm going to be getting up at quarter five to watch my beloved Glasgow Rangers play a European final. Okay, and nice. I can then function on like no sleep because sure. I won't sleep before. Um, but accumulatively that'll be a problem, and actually I need my seventy hours sleep, whatever. But um, yeah, yeah. So I think though to have those things and to build back in those things that do belong to you, mm. and whether it's you know I mean so 2022, but whether it's meditation mm. or exercise. Mm-hmm. And nutrition, like I find that at the restaurant, you're just eating staff meals and you right. might be eating snags and white bread, right. you know, and whatever. Right. And, and all of that kind of stuff is, is, is problematic for me. I need to make sure, you know, you need to make sure that you're putting the right fuel in your body. Yes. And actually your microbiome, I mean, like, I'm using all these 2022 20, buzzwords, <laughs> but your microbiome is functioning correctly, yeah. which does c- communicate via the vagus nerve with your brain mm-hmm. so that your, your, your well-being is there. Like all of these things actually kind of um, accumulate in order to make you a better person at work. Like in, in psychology, they call it kind of systems theory as well. Right. That actually, and I know you look at quadrants in your life, but yep. if you're looking at all of these different systems in your life and you've got family and you've got work and you've got self and you've got kids, you, you've got all these different roles that you're playing. Yeah. It's really important that you focus on yourself as part of that right. instead of external to that. Yeah. Because if you do make yourself a better person, yes. then you will then increase the quality of you being a dad yep. and you being a husband and you being yeah. an employer and you being, you know, a Water friend. all the plants. Whatever, exactly. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, it's it's funny because it's it sounds so simple, right? 
And it's just like, yeah, well, no shit. Why doesn't everyone just do that? Yeah. And it's it's funny because I feel like, I mean, for me personally, I don't know whether you felt this, but when I first became a parent and the thought of doing some of that stuff, the first feeling I had when I tried to go do my version of karate or whatever um, was guilt. Yeah, totally. You know? It's, oh, man, you, you, and I think it's really natural mm. for you to wrestle especially if there's something hard going on at home mm. for you to then remove yourself from that yeah. in order to self-care. Yeah. That is a really hard bridge to cross without guilt. Yes. But I think that understanding that you do, and actually the good thing is Ruth and I have a really open dialogue with that. And on Monday morning, she has yoga, you know, whatever, right? You need to find your own version of that. Mm. And you need to make sure you're both on the same team and you need to push each other and make yes. each other accountable yeah. to making yourself a better person. Because totally. if you don't, then you can just be consumed by all of the things that you're not doing well yeah, enough, right? Totally. And, and, and everything is spin because we're all, we've all got the curse of modernity that is mm. uh, that we're just strive to kind of fit in and accomplish as much as possible. Mm. And I think that though, it's actually really important to understand that we are also human beings and we're all trying uh, trying our best. Mm. And actually, if there's a big pile of laundry waiting to be folded in the <laughs> spare bed that doesn't mean that i'm failing as a human you yeah, know exactly. like so i think that you need to kind of come to terms with all of the stuff yeah that you're that you're trying to achieve and then and then success for me in a week is doing karate mm -hmm. and you know spending quality time with my kids once because they're in front of the television a bit or whatever mm. right again this is not a dad podcast but sure. I think it's important to Maybe we'll do cut yourself some slack. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think it's important to cut yourself some slack. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, I just love that you went there, man, because I think there's a lot of people that are going to be listening to this feeling the same thing, you know? Yeah. And like, I think you put it really well. It's hard to cross that bridge without dealing with the guilt. Yeah. Once you have learned how to deal with the guilt, you actually understand how beneficial and not just beneficial for you, how important it is for the people around you. hundred percent. You know, because doing like investing in self-care is not selfish. It's actually yeah. the best way that you can service others. Totally. You know? 100%. And I think a lot of people need to hear that, you know, so I'm, I'm so glad that you, you touched on those things, man. That was awesome. Um, okay. So I was going to ask you about like, you know, if you could only give people one tip and, and in opening a, a, a hospitality venue, but I feel like it's kind of boring and you've, you've given us heaps of tips. Um, let me ask you another boring question. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. How do you describe the industry at the moment? What are you apprehensive uh, about? Yeah, the industry. I mean, I think for a long time it was broken. Mm. Um, I think it was very hard. I think the, um, how do I phrase this? <laughs> um, I think that the wage structure mm -hmm. is very difficult to reconcile. Okay. And I think that in particular right now with COVID work shortages, um, I was reading an article yesterday about Freddie Wimpole's guy. I can't remember his name. Uh, he has a few bars, I think. And he's saying that he has offered people in the UK sponsorship and accommodation and flights and so on to get them over to do a job. Oh, I saw that. Because, yeah. yeah. So, and that's like totally bananas. Mm. So actually, like... There's, and I walk past the pub that used to be called the Robert Burns that's now right called eh? the Collingwood to tell or something yeah, like that. Just yeah. there, and I see a sign in the window saying, all positions required. Wow. And, <laughs> I mean, this will be date stamped right at this kind of m moment. <laughs> uh, or maybe not, because actually what's happened as well is a lot of young people don't want to work on the weekend. Mm. And they actually want to work, you know, in something else. And every, the gig economy means that everybody's got, everyone's an entrepreneur. Everyone's mm. doing their own totally. Etsy business. Yeah. And so on and so forth. And, and, and we're, we're losing this kind of, these staff members coming through. But mm. I think, I hope 
that what that then does is that it then makes people value their employees more than they ever have before. Yeah, and nice. I think that it's so important mm. that people feel like they're part of something mm. and that they are there and they're valued. Yep. And I think that for a long time, the industry could have been a bit shouty yeah. to some staff, <laughs> depending on who you are. And, um, and I think it is therefore this redressing this balance and also yeah. then the pays have gone up mm-hmm. and because the pays have gone up, the customer is paying more. And, right. and actually, I'm, uh, inevitable. I watched a video uh, of Nolan uh, at Proud Mary mm. talking about the cost of a cup of coffee. Right. And I don't know how many years ago that was, but it was maybe three or four. And he's saying that nobody pays enough for a cup of coffee because of the quality of the bean and the et cetera, mm. et cetera. Mm. Now, what has happened, of course, is that the industry was set up incorrectly with wage structures mm. based on something that wasn't viable and then now has to restructure and in an, an industry with such low margins, mm. the person that has to pay for that is the customer. Yeah. And I think that what happened was hopefully as well that COVID has redressed people's understanding of our industry and mm. of what we go through in mm. order to try and make their experience excellent. Yeah. Because I tell you what, most operators out there are trying to give you a good experience. Right. And I think what a lot of customers sometimes can do is just go, oh, it's not as good as... X, yeah, Y, or Z. Sure. And I think that actually now I think people appreciate what we're doing mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. And I think that what we're doing is is paying people more mm. and we're hopefully retaining people more. I mean, we had staff retention, re- really good res- staff retention anyway. Mm-hmm. But um, so therefore, hopefully, and the customer pays a bit more. Yeah, so it all translates. But, it do- but it's worth that. It's I worth mean, more than that, in fact, because what we're doing is very sophisticated. It's not right. us personally, mm, mm, mm. but all of these businesses yeah. are doing this really sophisticated stuff. Yeah. So you've got to pay a bit for it. Yeah. It's not even that. You might, it might be $5 more per banquet. Yeah, you know? Exactly. That's nothing. That's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> or it might be 50 cents more per beer, yeah. you know, which is nothing. But mm. actually for a bottom line, it's huge. And, yeah. um, but all, yeah. all, I mean, all, all that stuff's elastic. And I love, I yeah. love that response because it's so pragmatic and... The way that you talk about, like, yeah, well, we, we pay staff more, which means we have to charge more. I mean, you're literally describing how the dominoes fall yeah. in economics, right? So think about what we've been through. Yeah. We can always look at the, the more advanced countries economically than us as a bit of a crystal ball. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, first, the first domino to fall is supply chain constraint. Yeah. As soon as there's supply chain constraint, what happens? Wages go up. Yeah. Why? Because they need more people, right? Yeah. So it causes all sorts of trouble. So supply chain constraint equals wages go up. Wages go up equals prices go up. Prices go up equals inflation goes up. Yeah. Inflation goes up means the government step in and start messing around with credit rates and yeah. you know <laughs> and, yeah. and interest rates and whatnot. And it's all it's all a cycle. Yeah. You know, and totally. Yeah. So it's it's I love the fact that, you know, your response was was quite pragmatic in that way where it wasn't I mean I mean, maybe I'm being presumptuous here, but I mean when you think about the industry right now are you doom and gloom or are you a bit glass half full or i think that what this time has provided our industry is actually something that was required that everybody was scared to do mm. and i think that this forced redress mm. of the structure is is actually a really important step towards a better industry yes and so i, I actually that. am i'm pretty positive mm. and i think what happened i mean there's, there's there's saturation you just you said that earlier mm. and i think what's probably happened is that a few people have dropped out yep. and and therefore 
it's more important as well. It's more important that you focus on quality as well. And I think that it's more important that you focus on the customer experience because yeah. I think that there was a while there and we all experienced that, I'm sure, mm. where you walk into somewhere and the person that's serving you looked like they didn't want to serve you or that you were like not as good as them or <laughs> yeah, something. And totally. I'm just like, I hate that place. Yeah. I don't enjoy being served that way. Mm -hmm. And I think what it's doing now is it's making people value people more. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm pretty optimistic that the you know there's been some tragedies and we were we are uh, alive because of jobkeeper government grants and our landlord right who was totally on board for real for real totally on board and kudos to him mm -hmm. because he well he could have had an, it's also an economic decision for him because he could have had an empty tenancy right and we paid rent through that whole time but we we paid not a lot at the mm. at really sticky bits and then progressively more and we had a monthly discussion and so on mm. so I, I think I'm fairly optimistic although. I'm pretty concerned about the staff thing sure. and we need more backpackers to come. And mm. but I, I'm just hoping that that's a just, just a moment in time. Yeah. And because I'm, I was looking at the numbers of backpackers that came in 19 versus now mm. um, for the same quarter and it's way down. And I would think that hopefully that will, will come up. Look, I think, and I think, I think it's really bang on, but even if that pipeline doesn't yield the resources that we need, there'll just be irrigation somewhere else. Yeah. You know, because the thing that, that I've always thought of, and I think a lot of people that are right now dealing with these challenges in the industry need to hear a bit of this stuff. You know? Yeah. Because, I mean, honestly, you, you've just described for us this incredible tapestry of a career, right? You've done so much. Like, can you name one job that you've ever had where it was easy to hire staff or where it was easy to manage costs? Or So I, yeah. I, I'll tell you something funny, right? So um, I read this quote the other day, which I want to share with you. I think it's absolutely classic, right? So basically this it's like this really well-known restaurateur all right, describing the industry. Yeah. Okay? And he stays anonymous, right? Basically, and I'll probably butcher it, but it was something like the industry at the moment is without doubt the hardest it's ever been. Rent is increasing unprecedentedly. Staff talent is diluting in an already shrinking pool leading to shortages we've never seen before. The price of stock is constantly increasing and I can't put my prices up proportionately because the market is saturated. Overall... Yeah. It's just really hard to survive right now. Yeah. So most people would hear that and go, yeah, that's a pretty accurate reflection yeah. of the industry right now. Do you know when this quote was said? It was 1987. January 22nd, yeah. 1997. Oh, <laughs> yes. Totally. I so, mean, I, th I think there's some universal stuff in there. Like, what is it? Plato or Socrates that's having a go at young kids today, you know, <laughs> just being a pain in the ass. And it's like, you know, and then it's like, yeah. So it's just, there's a lot of universal stuff and it is for sure. It's a, it's mm. a, it's a hard industry. And that mm. sounds completely true to any time in, yeah. in my hospitality career. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I love that. Cause I think that's hospitality is a grind Yeah, and it's never been anything other than that. And it makes me appreciate it even more from a business perspective, because I man, if you want to be a business person, this is the hardest one. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's the fiercest competition. It's very hard. Yeah. And so I just, I love the fact that like, you know, sometimes when things get shaken up a little bit, people kind of forget that to a degree. Yeah. And it's just like, hey, you know how you survive this crazy market right now, which which is just a cycle like everything else, how you for survive sure. it is you just do the same thing you've always done. You use grit and you grind it out, you know? Yeah. And I love that your answer though was actually um, quite detailed. It wasn't really airy-fairy. It was pretty... Yeah. Yeah, like I said, it was really pragmatic. So that was awesome. Um, thanks, man. Uh, one last question. Yeah. Uh, tell me something. <laughs> right now I'm scared. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, this is an easy one. Just tell, tell me something that you're what – you, what are you excited about? What's coming up that's, that, that you're excited about? So personally or professionally? Professionally. Either or both, up to you. 
Excited. I've got karate grading next week. I'm going to be a blue belt. <laughs> no way. Excited about the Rangers being in the cup final that I just mentioned. I'm th- it's never going to happen again in my lifetime. Okay. Um, but I'm excited about um, dropping anchor in my community and building that further and, and being being there longer. And it's, it's, it's actually really lovely to watch what's unfolding there. Mm. Uh, I'm excited about backpackers coming back <laughs> or somehow more staff coming or, or something. I'm excited about... Um, yeah, what what else for the rest of the industry? Like, I'm always excited about innovation. Mm. I'm always excited about new new things, or or be new versions of old things or, sure. or whatever. You know, I mean, th- things can go a bit too far. But what what you guys do at Proud Mary is 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 really awesome, and and I really enjoy uh, being a, being a very outside part of that. You know, Thanks, um, man. yeah, I'm enjoying. I'm I'm looking forward to balance yeah. as much as possible. I think that's that's so key, and I think that. I'm really forcing myself into into making that happen. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's it, buddy. I'm Dude. sure I'm looking forward to a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing my family sometime. I've not seen them for a long uh, time. Yeah, how long has it been? Uh, 19, pre-pandemic, so oh, yeah, we'll see okay. what happens. Is that on the cards then? Have you got that? Uh, yeah, mum and dad were over, coming over for Christmas. They, they've just might have been pulled out because mum okay. health complications, but we're just okay. kind of working. I just got that this morning, so we'll, okay. work, we'll work out. What that looks like, but I'm excited to see them. Yeah. Okay. Well, some f- fingers fingers crossed day. for you, man. Yeah. Hey, thanks. dude. Honestly, this has been amazing. Thank yeah, you. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's been great. And I mean, first one, first time hosting a podcast for Principal of Hospitality, so you great made job. it really easy for me. Great job, sir. <laughs> thanks, mate. <laughs> Pat myself on the back. Yeah. yeah. Nice. <laughs> hey, man. Yeah. Honestly, it's it's been amazing. Thanks so much for sharing all that. I think a lot of people will get some amazing stuff out of it, bro. Thanks. So thank you. Thanks, Love Leon. Love your work. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been great. Yeah. Thanks, dude. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Principle of Hospitality. I hope you really enjoyed the episode. Please comment, like, and share this podcast with all your mates in the industry. We're making this content with the industry in mind, so we'd really appreciate you sharing it with all your homies. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks to Mr. Yum for... I reckon waiting for the bill in a restaurant at the end of the meal is such a pain. I know, but have you seen Mr. Yum split in pay? I used it the other day at a restaurant. I just scanned the bill and straight away was able to easily split it with friends, pay and leave. It was super fast and super easy. Really sounds amazing. That's right. Mr. Yum Split and Pay makes it so simple for diners to pay their bill, to split it between a group and even pay for individual items. Restaurants love it as they get to know their customers better than ever, making it simple to send targeted offers and get their guests coming back again and again. It really is a game changer for venues that love full service but want to streamline payments. Mr. Yum's Split and Pay is the better way to pay, and it's free until July 2023. Visit mryum.com.